All right, testing, one, two, three. Is that working? Are the speakers working? I think the speakers are working. No hums, no buzzes. We're all good for tonight. Okay. All right, until I start making the announcements. So men's prayer breakfast is coming up on February the 10th. That is in three weeks, two weeks. And then um, the annual congregation meeting is the next day on Sunday, so we encourage people, even if you're not a member, to attend so that you know what is going on. Then we're having this conference on showing our support for Israel and... Wait a minute. Well... We wouldn't know what to do if there wasn't a glitch here. All right, I think that'll work. Um, and that's the focal point, is we're showing our support for the Jewish community when we go over to Yad Vashem, and we'll be sending you uh, information about that and the certain protocols that we should follow as guests at um, uh, Beth Yashurn. So... Um, Olivier Melnick will be here on Wednesday. I'm going to teach that Tuesday night. That's a change. I'm going to teach on Tuesday night. And then Wednesday night, Olivier Melnick will be here. Yoram will be here Thursday night. And then um, we've been invited to participate in a Shabbat service with uh, at, Yad, at, a Yad Vashem, at Beth Yashurn on Friday night. And then... Um, you need to, if you plan to go, you need to let us know because there needs to be a, a sign-up for security purposes there. Okay. I think that's it. I heard from Jim Myers. He's speaking at a place called Bibleville down in the valley. Bibleville is a as a an RV park for winter Texans. That means Yankees who come down here for the winter. But they have, this is organized around a Christian ministry, and they have a chapel there that will seat quite a few people. And they had about 100 there last night from the report that I got. I have spies everywhere. Uh, from the report that I got and that, um, that it went really well. Jim texted me Tuesday morning and said that, um, he said, and I had sent him with 75 English and 75 Spanish promise books, and he said, we need a lot more promise books. They're gone. So they are, they, and the report I got was this group there is very positive, very hungry for the word, and so we can um, be thankful for that. And just exciting to see how things go. And then we heard from Charles Musanda today, sent a video that apparently no one can understand, and uh, a video of some young man who was talking about how wonderful the promise book was, and he wants more of them. But we're not sure that's what he said. <laughs> so I had to text Charles and say, would you please write out what he said? None of us were quite able to understand all that he said. So we'll, uh, we'll probably post that because it's kind of fun to watch. All right, so that's it. So we can pray for all of these things and give thanks for these things, and then uh, we will begin. So let's uh, bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our
Uh, Father, it's just exciting to watch you work. It's exciting to see how people are responding to the promise book, but it's mostly just promises. It's just your word, and it's just encouraging to see people get excited about your word. And so, Father, we're thankful for the way in which you're using this around the world. We're thankful for the ministry that Jim and Phyllis are having down in the valley at Rio Grande Bible Institute in Bibleville. And, Father, we just pray that you will uh, keep them safe on the way back and that this will be a very spiritually profitable time for the students and for the people there. Father, we are thankful that we can be here tonight to study your word, to come to a better understanding of what you have revealed to us, and that we can understand better uh, lots of parts of the scripture as we study this topic tonight. And we just pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are in Philippians chapter 3, which we started two weeks ago, and the topic that uh, I'm focusing on tonight, which is right where I ended three weeks ago, is on the new circumcision. What does the scripture mean, and what does Paul mean in Philippians 3, 3, when he mentions the new circumcision? So we need to just open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Here we go. And get caught up. So there's a shift in the focus of uh, Paul when, when he gets into chapter 3. And it goes back to Philippians chapter 1, 27, 28, which is what we've studied, which I've gone over in the introduction, the last I don't know how many lessons, that this sets the stage. I'm convinced that the writers of Scripture, which is the human author and the Holy Spirit, are good writers. And that means, like any good writer, they usually start off giving you some sort of topical sentence that tells us what the epistle is about. And some are a little easier to discover, some are a little more obscure, but I find that this is true in just about every book I've drilled down into in the New Testament. And one of the things is, if we don't understand the book as a whole at the very beginning and get a handle on what they are saying they're going to write about, then we will often misinterpret that which is within the epistle. And we just we sort of miss it. That doesn't mean that we're to use a uh, target shooting analogy, that doesn't mean we're off the paper, but we're not right dead center in the bullseye. And I hope that I have been closer to the bullseye than a, a lot of people that I have studied under when it comes to this, because everything then in the epistle can work its way back to that topical sentence, just like in any any good book or any good exposition on any good topic. So in Philippians 1.27, two ideas are introduced, and that is standing fast and unity. He says, stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together. You could almost take those words and make a chiasm out of it. Standing fast is comparable to striving together, and then... Uh, one spirit and one mind are parallel. And the focal point is that unity and then that unity towards driving um, the, the standing fast 
for the faith of the gospel. And verse 28 then goes on to say, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. And what we see is two groups of adversaries in Philippians and also in other epistles. One is a group that was called Judaizers. These were Jewish background believers, very likely aligned or at least influenced by Pharisaism. And so they are trying to add something to the gospel. They are adding the observance of the Mosaic law so that they're basically saying that if you don't obey the Mosaic law, and for them the greatest commandment aside from the Sabbath is circumcision as a sign of the Mosaic covenant. We'll talk about That's what we're going to talk about tonight. And so they would add circumcision to, uh, to the gospel or you're not saved. And then there were those who would add, wouldn't add it to the cross for salvation, but they would add it for spiritual growth and spiritual, uh, spiritual life. That's really what Paul focuses on in the epistle to the Galatians, which is where we will end up as we go through the material tonight. And so Paul's dealing with this same issue in Philippi. And there were the, we know from reading Acts that there were these groups of Judaizers that followed Paul, and then they would come in behind him and say, no, Paul wasn't quite right. You also have to apply and obey the Mosaic law. And that was why he was writing these epistles of correction. And he's really strong. He uses strong language, especially in Galatia, and tells them uh, no, with no uncertain uncertainty that they are anathema if they hold to another gospel, a gospel other than that which he, uh, which he had proclaimed. So that's, that's the background here. And the key words that we see here are stako, which we'll see again. I'll bring that up in a passage we're going to look at later on in Galatians. And this is, um, is the idea here. And then sunathleo here means simply to work together. So the Chapter 3 goes from focusing on unity, as which was the theme in chapter 2, to focusing on standing firm against er- error. And this is a primary role for a pastor teacher, is to prepare the congregation, sheep that we all are, including the pastor, and as I am prone to say, God calls a sheep, and it's not a compliment. Sheep will starve to death, and they will die of thirst five feet from food or water because they just can't figure out how to get there. And so God compares us to sheep, and it's not because we're cute. It's because we're not very bright. And I include myself in that because it applies to all believers. So we are to be trained and that's the role of these leadership gifts of Ephesians 4.11. Apostles and prophets died out at the end of the first century. And what continues are evangelists and pastor teachers whose job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And that includes refuting error and being able to clearly explain the hope that is within you, why you believe what you believe. Until, so the purpose of this is toward a goal, we come to the unity of the faith 
and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the full stature and the fullness of Christ, and that we should no longer be children. So the goal for every believer is to grow to spiritual maturity, not to stay a baby. The goal is not to stay in spiritual diapers. The goal is to grow to spiritual maturity so that you can effectively serve the Lord. And that doesn't come by listening to a message on Sunday morning only or just coming Sunday morning, Tuesday night, or Thursday night. But it means being immersed in the Word, immersing your soul in the Word of God day in and day out from memorizing, reading Scripture, memorizing Scripture, learning. I have uh, lessons on how to study the Bible on the website to go there, learn how to study the Bible. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for Sunday school teachers. It's for every single sheep. And so we need to do that because it's only the Word of God that's going to mature us. It's only the Word of God that's going to teach us how to think correctly about everything in life. I was thinking about this this afternoon while I, while I was driving, and I thought, if we assume that there's a God without saying anything about the God, that really changes how we should perceive everything in contrast to no God at all. And if the God that is there is the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then that in turn changes how we should think about that. Just having a God itself almost implies that there's got to be some kind of absolutes. But if that God is the creator God, then that means that everything is designed and and interacts with purpose and significance, especially human beings. And if that God can communicate, then that God can clearly communicate to his creatures so that they can understand. And the only thing that keeps us from understanding is our own limitations that we put upon ourselves. Anybody can understand the Bible, especially in the church age, with the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. It just takes time and dedication and realization that that's what we're all supposed to know. We're all supposed to know the Bible. And so we have to, uh, we have to learn it. We have to have a teacher that will teach us, and we can only grow by God's Word. That's why Peter said that we were to, to desire the unadulterated milk of the Word like a newborn baby so that we may grow by it. That is the means. Jesus said to pray to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth, set them apart by means of truth. Thy word is truth. So this is the, the focal point. Titus one nine, Paul wrote to Titus as a pastor, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine. I always like this, by sound doctrine. Back in the 70s, it was popular among some seminaries to send out uh, questionnaires to their alumni to find out, well, what did you learn at seminary that was helpful and what do you wish you had more of? And I've always considered, if you were a kindergarten teacher, would you ask your students, what do you want to do today? And then build the curriculum about what they want to do. That's insanity, a seminary, like a church and a pastor and a parent, needs to tell the children, the students, whomever, 
what they are supposed to learn and why they are supposed to learn it. It's not, a, it's not the student's job because they don't have a clue. But yeah, we live in a world now where we let the students tell the teachers what they want to study, and we have children who tell parents what the, how they're supposed to be raised. Everything is backwards. And what happened in the 70s is that these things came back, these questionnaires came back, and many, many of the pastors said, well, I'm just not prepared to counsel. So all these seminaries started adding all these counseling classes and learning different models of uh, psychotherapy and counseling, and that violates the whole principle of the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, Apparently, Paul never heard of that because he keeps pounding on this idea that it needs to be sound doctrine. And he never mentioned psychology or sociology or any of these other methodologies that pastors are going to to lead their churches. So we are to be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. So we have to understand what the bad guys are saying. So in Philippians 3.1, he says, Finally, my brethren, and finally doesn't mean like some pastors that, well, in conclusion, and then 45 minutes later they finally end their message, This is a poor translation. It really has the idea of just saying, well, for the rest. Uh, It's the idea that there is um, the next point. And so it's just a transitional phrase. So, And then he says, uh, for the rest, my brothers, you all rejoice in the Lord. So there's that command to rejoice in 1 Thessalonians 5. 16, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. It's almost like God wants us to rejoice. And this isn't emotion. It's the opposite. It's a mental attitude. Because emotions are driven by your external circumstances. When things are going well, then you feel better, you're happy. That's not the biblical idea of joy. The biblical idea of joy is produced by God the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a mental attitude that comes from having your mindset established uh, by the Word of God. So he commands to rejoice. And when we saw this in Philippians 2.18, for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice. He keeps commanding this. Have you ever had somebody come up to you when you really weren't in a great mood and just say, be happy? You can't do that. We can't respond like that because the, the issue in biblical joy is a mental attitude and we have all kinds of things. Maybe we, I know everybody here slept eight and a half hours last night and you felt wonderful when you woke up this morning. I don't think anybody here did from the looks on your faces. And so when we don't get enough sleep, sometimes we wake up and we're a little grumpy. I wonder where that, that idiom developed that you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's so antiquated that at that time they probably didn't have beds. They just had a sleeping bag. And I don't know how you can wake up on the wrong side of a sleeping bag. Any side's the wrong side. So we have to have a mental attitude that is focused on the Lord. 
And so then he comes into verse uh, 2, and he says, Beware three times, he he warns, watch out, be careful. A three-time repetition in Scripture is serious. Twice is really unusual, but three times is extremely rare, and it's very important to observe that. The word there is blepo, which means to watch out for something, to look. Literally, it's a word related to seeing or looking, so it has the idea of look out for something, be on the lookout for something. And the first thing is, is dogs, which is a derogatory term the Jews use for Gentiles. But Paul flips it because he's talking about this set of Judaizers, and he's calling them dogs. This becomes clear from the other things that he says. In Isaiah 56.10, we read, His watchmen are blind, they are all ignorant. So the Jews are God's chosen people. They are not to be blind. They are to be awake. But, but Isaiah condemned them in his generation as being spiritually blind. His watchmen, God's watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. So Paul would have been very familiar uh, with that particular passage. I don't know why I worked on this today. I thought it got straightened out. So the second one is evil workers. He called these Judaizers deceitful workers in 2 Corinthians 11.13. So he's clearly talking to this one set group who's going to add works to the gospel, the law. And then the third one really gets us into our topic for tonight, and that is mutilators. Because of their insistence on circumcision for salvation or for the spiritual life or for both. So in Colossians 2.11 we read, In him you were also circumcised. That's talking to believers. We were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So this verse tells us there is a non-physical circumcision. The physical act of circumcision was to represent a spiritual reality. And we'll see that as we go through the topic. Uh, They were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. There is an interpretive key there that the physical ritual of circumcision was to picture a spiritual reality of removing the authority of the sin nature in the, in the believer's life. Not, not removing the sin nature, but removing its authority. That's why Paul is able to say in Romans 6.11 that you consider yourselves dead to sin. And we still have a sin nature, but we need to recognize that, no, I don't have to obey it. Before you're saved, you had no choice. You had one nature, your sin nature, and that's all you could do. Everything you did was produced by your fallen sin nature, your spiritually dead uh, sin nature, and you were uh, actively, uh, actively led by it. But after we're saved... Even though the sin nature is still there, we're still corrupt. We'll always have trouble with the sin nature till the day we die we, because we're freed from it, which is the point of spirit, spiritual baptism. So in Philippians 3.3, 3, Paul then says, For we are the circumcision who worship God by means of the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So here he 
goes back to his initial command and repeats it to tie things together. So we're going to address the topic of what does the Bible teach about circumcision. So first of all, we need to define it. Circumcision is the removal of the foreskin of the male genital organ. And it is, you know, I heard some Jewish comedian talking about this in a comedy skit not long ago that someone sent me on YouTube. It was absolutely hilarious. But, you know, he just referred to this as a useless flap of skin, but so's the sin nature. I, I, I thought about that because that's the comparison. So's the sin nature. It's something useless that we have with us. It destroys our lives. It destroys our, our, our joy. Now, the word circumcision comes from the Hebrew word mul, M-U-L, which is translated accurately circumcision or as a verb to let oneself be, or it means circumcised as a verb, let oneself be circumcised, or it could relate to being something being cut off. It has to do with something that is round. The noun is mulah. So when you look at Hebrew, and then how that sort of was affected by uh, the um, Germany, German language and Eastern European language and the development of Yiddish, the way that gets pronounced is moil. And so when you have a son, then eight days, you go to the moil, and the moil performs the circumcision. That's where that word derives. Now, in Greek, it's peritemno, like you have perimeter, P-E-R-I is a Greek preposition meaning to go around. So peritemno is the verb to circumcise, and peritome is the noun to circumcise. Now, what was the significance of this? This is where people get a little confused, because circumcision is actually the sign of two, or not the sign, but circumcision is mandated in two different covenants. Okay? It's mandated, first of all, in the Abrahamic covenant. It's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, the sign of the covenant with Noah was the, uh, was the rainbow. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath. So circumcision is significant in two different covenants, but it has a different meaning in the two covenants. It means one thing to the Abrahamic covenant. It means something else to the Mosaic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, it is fundamentally a sign of, of separation unto God. It distinguished Jewish People, Jewish men from the pagans around them who were, uh, were not circumcised, even though, as I'll point out in a minute, uh, circumcision was practiced by some uh, ancient, uh, ancient groups. It's a sign of separation unto God. So Je- Genesis 17, 10, and 11, Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 are your two key passages that talk about the Abrahamic covenant, when God cuts the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, and again, there's more added in Genesis 17. 
God says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep. That's a command. It's not an option. Which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Now, at this point, you don't have Isaac yet. I can imagine Abraham is saying, among us, I got me and Sarah. So we've already kicked Ishmael out. So what do you mean? This is among those descendants, those many numerous descendants that God had promised him, that every male child among them shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. I made a mistake there. I think Isaac had been born at this point. No, no, he hadn't been born at this point. And um, so Abraham's going to have to get circumcised at this point. In Genesis 17, 12, God goes on to say, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house, that would be one of your natural-born children, or bought with money from a foreigner who is not your descendant. In other words, if you have bought a slave, then the slave who comes into your household shall also be circumcised. Verse 13, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So number one, the Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant. Just because uh, the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah doesn't mean that the Abrahamic covenant was put on hold. The Abrahamic covenant is still in effect for every Jewish male and for Every Jew, they are still God's chosen people. Whether they're believers or not, they are of descendants of Abraham. And in Genesis seventeen fourteen, we read, And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. Does it, that's not a death penalty. It means that he is to be ostracized. He is blacklisted. He is not involved in the community. The uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh or his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, the ceremony that is uh, that, uh, that, uh, uh, of, of circumcision is called a bris, B-R-I-S, and that is from the Hebrew word berit, B-E-R-I-T, berit, which is the word for covenant. But the interesting thing is that somewhere along the line, uh, the Ashkenazi Jews, and those were the Jews who lived in Eastern Europe, the Jews that lived, you know, mostly in Eastern Europe, some in Western Europe, the Sephardic Jews were the Jews that lived in, uh, in Spain and Portugal, and North Africa. Sometimes those who lived in North Africa are called Mitzrayi Jews. But the Ashkenazi Jews, on words that ended with a T, like Berit or Shabbat, the final T became an S. So if you've watched Fiddler on the Roof, they'll say, Good Shabbos. See, they're Ashkenazi. They changed the final T to an S. So with the word berit, it became bris, shortened to bris. 
So that's why it, you don't have that final T there. And, um, and so this is still practiced today. I've, had, I've been invited to a couple of different brises, which is quite an honor for a Gentile to be invited to a bris. Verse 14 says, The uncircumcised uh, male child um, will be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. Verse 26 says, That very day Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael. But Ishmael, of course, is not part of the Abrahamic covenant. But the question is, why the male only? Now, this is where the Bible and God's plan runs afoul of modern thinking about the roles of men and women. The male is the head of the home. The Bible does not conceive of a population of single people, which is what we have today. The Bible conceives of a nation as a group of families, and that in many cases, especially with young women, they would not live apart from the family until they were, until they were married. So the male is the head of the home. We see this even in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Uh, where Paul writes, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. Now, it's very clear in that statement that head has the idea of authority. It does not have the idea of source. That's what feminists try to argue, but it's very difficult to find any examples where head means source. We'll talk about the headwaters of the Nile in English, but in Greek, you have a different word. It's it's not head. Head represents authority. The head of every man is Christ. So we have to be consistent with how we define terms. The head of woman is man. That means it's an authority relationship. It's not the authority relationship of a drill sergeant and his recruits. It's the authority relationship of a team where two people are working together in harmony but one, like in dancing, one has to lead and one has to follow. And if you get the rules messed up, then you're not really dancing. You're just having trouble on the dance floor. And then he goes on to say, and the head of Christ is God. So even Christ is under authority. So the idea of being under authority does not mean you're less than the person whose authority you're under. That's one of the, see, in feminism, you have a real Christological heresy because they say that submission means you're unequal. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible sees Christ, who is fully God, undiminished deity, as being 100% equal to the Father, yet there is an authority within the Godhead. So there is the headship of man in the family. The authority is the husband, the head of the wife, Ephesians 5.23, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Then we get to uh, understanding the significance of circumcision, that it's a sign of separation to God. It's for the male representing the head of the family and that the family is set apart to, the, to God. It's separation to God. Second, 
We recognize that because sin came from Adam, the man, the head of the human race, there has to be this kind of a spiritual uh, distinction made. And because the man is the head of the home. So the man represents the transmission of the sin nature. So there has to be this this um, removal of this flap because that represents a separation unto God. And this is really important to understand this, that sin comes through the male and it's representing what we will see later on is that removal of the power well, and that's not the right word, the authority of the sin nature in our life. And then the third reason is that in Israel, the tribe of Levi was the designated priestly tribe, and only male Levites served. You didn't have a feminist movements saying that, you know, women ought to have an equal role being priests. It was very clear that spiritual leadership was invested in the male, whether he was worthy or not, whether he was capable or not, whether he was competent or not. So this is a covenant, God says, which you shall keep forever. It's an everlasting covenant. Third point is that circumcision was already practiced as part of different cultures in the ancient Near East, but it had different meanings and a different significance and different rituals. In many of them, it didn't happen until puberty, and I wouldn't want to live in one of those cultures. Fourth, uh, the second covenant, circumcision was commanded in the Mosaic covenant. So first it's commanded in the Abrahamic covenant as a sign of being an heir of the Abrahamic covenant. It means you're Jewish. In the Mosaic covenant, it has a different focus. It's commanded in Leviticus 12.3. If you do a search on circumcision through the Pentateuch in Exodus and Leviticus, uh, you have it reference the circumcision that Moses has to perform upon his son in Exodus and a couple of references to that. And then this is the only command. But it is elevated, as we'll see in a few minutes, it's elevated in rabbinical thought and the thought after the exile that this is as significant. There are two commands that the rabbi said define Judaism, the Sabbath and circumcision. That's how important it is. So in the Mosaic law, it's a requirement for partaking in the Passover. Any non-Israelite, a servant or slave, uh, were prohibited from eating the Passover unless they were circumcised. Any any neighbor, you know, it's, it says in the uh, in the text that when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover of the Lord. Now I just like this because this says that those who are coming into a country are strangers. I always like the French étranger. Everybody's a stranger. You're either French or you're a stranger. And that's the way God is. You're either with me or you're a stranger. And so only those who had, were circumcised could participate in the political entity of Israel. 
It had nothing to do with salvation or the spiritual life. It had to do with participation in the commonwealth of Israel because the law code was the Mosaic law. It's comparable to their constitution. So fifth, circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant was a sign of the covenant and thus a sign of being Jewish, and it was mandatory for all Jewish males. Question, is the Abrahamic covenant an everlasting covenant? Is the Mosaic covenant an everlasting covenant? No. Christ ended it at the cross. So the idea of circumcision to participate in the Jewish commonwealth ends at the cross. But the idea that you are born a male Jew does not end ever. You are always a member of of, of the Jewish descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and thus circumcision is still mandatory for every Jewish male. had nothing to do with salvation or sanctification. It had to do with separation because you were part of God's chosen people. And even today, the Jewish people are God's chosen people. That's one of the reasons that, um, that anti-Semitism is so evil. It goes against God's promises to Abraham and his descendants. So this, um, under the Mosaic Covenant, circumcision was a sign of submission to the law of Moses. It's mandatory for Jew or Gentile if you're going to participate in the commonwealth of Israel in the nation. Again, it had nothing to do with justification. It had nothing to do with sanctification. It had nothing to do with the spiritual life. And the reason I emphasize that is by the time you get to the Pharisees in the New Testament and the Pharisees who had become believers, they go back to this to try to impose it on Gentiles if you're going to be saved or if you're going to really be sanctified. That was the whole issue in Galatians. So this helps us to understand this, that they are perverting Judea, uh, a circumcision uh, for spiritual purposes that were not part of its original intent. So six, what, what was circumcision, what was the significance of circumcision in, in the Second Temple Judaism? Okay, now, that term may be unfamiliar to you. First Temple Judaism is during the time of the Solomonic Temple. Solomon dedicated the temple, and uh, um, you know that was approximately nine, somewhere around 979 A.D. And that temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. I, excuse me, I said 979 uh, B.C., and the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., The second temple began to be built when Zerubbabel returned with the first group of Jews coming back from Babylon. Uh, They delayed a while. That's what Haggai's about. That's what Zechariah's about to some degree. And uh, they had to kickstart the program finally. And about uh, 516, they started building the second temple. And it's referred to as Zerubbabel's temple, and it wasn't nearly as uh, grand, grand. It didn't have nearly the grandeur of the Solomonic Temple. 
And it's a second temple. And a lot of people ask the question, well, why wasn't um, Herod's temple called the third temple? Which is, you know, that's an honest question because Herod starts to renovate the temple uh, somewhere around uh, 20 to 24 B.C. And it wasn't even finished at the time of Christ. Why isn't it considered a third temple? Because the daily sacrifices never stopped. As long as those daily sacrifices continued, all you were doing was renovating the house. You weren't ending one and building a new one. Now, this is interesting because in Second Temple Judaism, this is the era after, or the era post-Second Temple Judaism, is the era after Titus destroys the temple in A.D. 70. There's no temple. That's the center of what it means to worship as a Jew. So Judaism goes from biblical Judaism to post-Second Temple Judaism, and the only group that survives after the destruction of the temple are the Pharisees. You had the Sadducees, but remember the Sadducees didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in anything after Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, and they didn't believe in resurrection or a life after death. That's why they were sad, you see. Now you'll never forget that. Bad, bad puns always stay in your head. So you have, the Sadducees have nothing to provide for the people after the destruction of the temple. There's no hope. Uh, the Essenes basically been kind of just evaporated into the dustbins of history. And the Zealots have been wiped out at Masada. So the only group that is still standing are the Pharisees. And so they get, to, get together at a place called Jamnia. And they basically reinvent Judaism for Jewishness without a temple. And that's a whole other, other issue. But in Second Temple Judaism, you have the real flowering of what is the foundation for present rabbinical theology. This, this gets into interesting stuff. What did these rabbis come up with? And this wasn't new with them. Some of this is older, so you get a little glimpse of what the problem is that Paul is having to deal with with these Judaizers. So you have this verse in Ezekiel 16.6, which God is speaking. He's giving, a, he's giving kind of a parable about the birth and the development of Israel. And he says, when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to any of us, so we have to have the context. So he starts off, he addresses Ezekiel. He says, son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. It's a message of judgment. So he's going to go back to how did Israel begin? How did, the, how did God begin the nation? And, he said, and uh, so uh, he tells Ezekiel and say this, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. That goes back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. From the land of Canaan, your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. 
nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you. I mean, they were just a nothing nation. That's what he's saying. Uh, no, I pitied you to do any, any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. Now you have a pretty good idea how this analogy works, right? Well, now we're going to see how the rabbis interpreted this. This is what's fun and difficult about reading the rabbis. It's like, what are you guys smoking? So Rabbi Matia bin Koresh used to say, but as yet they had no commandments to perform. Okay, God hadn't given them the Mosaic law yet, by virtue of which they might merit redemption. God therefore assigned them two commandments, the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb, Passover, and circumcision, which they were to perform so as to merit being saved. One cannot obtain reward except by deeds. See, notice that last part. He said, circumcision is to merit being saved. One cannot obtain reward except by deeds. No concept of grace, number one. And number two, circumcision is a means of salvation. Jacob Neusner, who is a modern uh, Jewish writer, commentator, he's the editor of numerous books about Judaism, and he writes in the Encyclopedia of Judaism, as the Ezekiel exegesis demonstrates, the central symbol of the circumcision ritual was its blood. Regularly, therefore, pay attention to this, Regularly, therefore, we find reference not only to the salvific nature of the rite in general, but more specifically to the saving merit of circumcision blood. So it, it's not just for, because not everybody can be circumcised, but it represents salvation of the nation by following the ritual of circumcision because that ties you to the Abrahamic covenant. So by the time that Jesus came, the belief was that if you were a descendant of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, that is what saved you. Now, I have a friend that's Jewish and was talking with a family member who was a Messianic Jew. And I had known this individual for a while and so she felt safe and secure in asking me questions to translate what her messianic cousin was telling her. And so she, she asked me a question because he mentioned something about covenants. She said, what are these covenants? So I went to my notes and I cut and pasted the definitions and summaries and I put in, took out the New King James Scripture and put in the Tanakh Scripture Tanakh is an acronym for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketavim, the three divisions of the Jewish Bible, the law, prophets, and writings. And so I went through all of those with her. She said, well, is this how Jews were saved in the Old Testament? And then I said, no. 
They were saved by faith. This is the issue with Abraham. He believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness because our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, that laid a groundwork in my thinking for writing a tract for Jewish people that answers the question, how is a man righteous before God? That question isn't unique to me. It's in Job 9. Job is not a Jew. He's not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He probably lived at the same time as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the point is that 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 Jews don't know. They think that just by being involved with the family and the people that circumcised, that that gets them saved. And so I went through Isaiah 64, 6, that all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. And that the only way we can have righteousness is if God gives it to us. So I've just recently finished a tract that I have written on that whole topic, going through all of these verses in the Old Testament, just dealing with what was revealed in the Old Testament about righteousness. And so I hope to be able to, we can get this printed, if not before three weeks from now, at least before the Chafer Conference. But this is what they, they believe. Uh, Neusner goes on to say, at any rate, the symbolic value of circumcision as an act of salvation is evident throughout our second century sources, not before. That's important. Judaism gets redefined by this this head rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, who organizes the Jomnia Conference, and he's a brilliant guy, hates Christians, who are at that time are probably 75% Jewish, and he has his own counterfeit Messiah, Bar Kokhba, who leads a second Jewish revolt in 135, and about eight or 900,000 Jews are killed in that revolt. But he redefines Judaism. Now we get on, now we see that what happens in Second Temple Judaism is that, that circumcision becomes the basis for salvation. Seventh point we see is the Mosaic Law mandated circumcision for every male child on the eighth day. Jesus follows, Jesus' parents follow the law and on the eighth day they go to Jerusalem and he was circumcised. Eighth point is that the spiritual significance of circumcision is related to dedication and submission to God and his plan. That's seen in these verses I'm going to come to. This is, but, but is the individual doing it? When you've got this eight-day-old baby, is he saying, I want to be circumcised because I want to be dedicated to God? If he had his druthers, he probably wouldn't want to be circumcised. His parents are dedicating him to God and themselves to bring him up according to Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, in, to bring him up uh, and teach him the law and so that he grows up uh, under the law. Leviticus 26.41 said, uh, introduces a new concept, what, what it really represents and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt. 
So this is an indictment by God on the Exodus generation, and he says they have uncircumcised hearts. Now we begin to realize that physical circumcision is supposed to is represents a spiritual condition. And those who are not submissive to God, even though they may be physically circumcised, they're not circumcised spiritually. Their hearts are not circumcised. Deuteronomy 10.16, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So being stiff-necked, that is stubborn toward God, is the opposite of having a uh, your, heart's, your heart circumcised. So the context is, in Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13, God says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today, for his good. Moses doesn't get to the point about obeying the commandments until he's already talked about, you need to fear the Lord, walk in his ways, and love him and serve him. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses said, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So a circumcised heart has to do with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This foreshadows the new covenant, which is referenced in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. So this is talking about the future in the millennial kingdom. But the point is, it's talking about giving you a new heart. That's a circumcised heart. Jeremiah 9, 24. Let's just skip down to 25 where it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Because the physically circumcised don't have a circumcised heart and so it doesn't matter what the physical reality is this is what um, will be referenced by Stephen in his sermon against the Pharisees when they're about to stone him and he says you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so did you which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. So their spiritual rebellion is equivalent to an uncircumcised heart. That's the foundation for understanding things in the New Testament, that the physical circumcision was a sign of A, Judaism, and B, devotion to God, but it was designed to reflect a mental attitude, which was the important thing. So in the ninth point, in the early church, there were some among the Jews that taught that salvation was not possible unless a person was circumcised. Acts 15.1 tells us, and certain men came down, they were going to Antioch, so anytime you're leaving Jerusalem, you're going down, came down from Judea and taught the brethren Quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this was 
heresy form one in the early church, legalism. You're adding something to salvation. Verse 5 says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them. So they're believers, but they've gone back into this legalism where they are trying to enforce the law as a means of spirituality. The tenth point is that Paul argued that it was not the outer physical circumcision that was significant, but the inner circumcision of the heart. This is in Romans 2, 28 and 29, where Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Later in Romans 9, he'll say, not all Israel is Israel. The true Israel are those who were saved, who were redeemed, who had a circumcision of the heart. So he's making that same distinction here. There are those who were Jews in a physical sense, but they're not truly Jews unless there is that heart circumcision. So my 11th point is that circumcision was a major distraction taught by the Judaizers, and that's who Paul was correcting in Galatians. Now, Galatians is really divided into two sections. Chapters 1 and 2 deals with the problem of circumcision and justification, uh, following the law as a part of getting saved. And chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 deal with the second problem, which is emphasizing the law for spiritual life. So at the beginning of that section in Galatians 3.3, Paul says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? In other words, you are saved. You trust in Christ as Savior. You are born again by the Holy Spirit. Are you now being made perfect or made complete, mature, by the flesh? Talking about getting circumcised. Galatians 5, 1 through 4, he comes back to address this. Actually, this goes down to verse 15, but I'll only only hit the high points. He says to them, as he leans towards his conclusion, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Stand fast. Have you read that, heard that somewhere else tonight? That's what... Chapter three, chapter 3 of Philippians is all about standing fast. Same word. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circum- circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. If you go into legalism, it's all going to be dead works from the sin nature. It's no good. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. If you're going to say, I have to keep one thing in it to be sanctified, then you're committed to the whole thing. You have to do everything in the law. And he says, the result of this, verse 4, you've become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. That doesn't mean if they were saved that they lost their salvation. It's they've departed from grace. They used to understand grace. They believed a grace gospel. They believed in a grace salvation and spiritual life before, but now they've left that. They've gone into legalism. 
Verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But faith working in love. The only thing that does is faith working through love. In verse 11, he says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Then Colossians, he says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hand. So he's connecting this. We as believers were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, what is that? By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. So that's what circumcision pictures, putting off the power, the uh, tyranny of the sin nature. By the circumcision of Christ. This is the only place you see that phrase, the circumcision of Christ. I could wish that those who trouble you would even castrate themselves. Paul was a little bit irritated with them. Colossians 3.9 then says, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. That's not putting off the sin nature. That's putting off all that you were in Adam, as we've studied in, in the Ephesians series. And you put on the new man, past tense. You put on the new man when you trusted Christ as Savior. You are a new creature in Christ. The new man is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, using those terms to talk about physical, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, where did these Scythians come from? They come from sort of southern Russia. And so some of them had migrated down into the area what we refer to as Turkey today. But Paul's writing to the, those in Colossae, Colossae who are just east of Ephesus. So there were Scythians in the area. So that's why he used the term Scythians. So here we have our chart that we're familiar with from Sunday morning. When we trust in Christ, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. We are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the circumcision done without hands. Because the power of the sin nature is broken. We are placed in Christ, which is the new man. And then we have to learn to walk that way, which is to walk by the Spirit and be filled by the Spirit. But it's grounded upon the reality of having uh, that circumcision done without hands. So under point 12, the true circumcision is that which is spiritual. So here we are back in Philippians 3. For we are the circumcision, Paul now says, we believers in Christ who worship God by means of the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So then Paul's going to give us his resume of all the things that he has done according to Jewish religious ritual that should have given him some standing before God, and he concludes that it's all horse manure or cow manure 
whatever you prefer. It's manure. All right, we'll come back and get into that uh, next time. Wait a minute, I have another point. When Jesus died, it was the end of the Mosaic Law. Therefore, there is no basis for circumcising Jew or Gentile based on the Mosaic Law. However, Jewish males are still under the eternal covenant of the Abrahamic covenant, and thus they're still required to circumcise their sons on the eighth day. Paul refused to have Titus circumcised because he was a Gentile. But then when Timothy came along, because Timothy's mother was Jewish, Paul said, you've got to be circumcised, or you're just going to be in trouble everywhere I go because I go to the Jew first and then to the, the Gentiles, and they're just not going to accept you, so we can't have that. You've got to be circumcised. Now, in some theological systems, the attempt is made to make circumcision analogous to baptism. But circumcision under the Mosaic law was done for an eight-day-old child. It is a statement of the parent's commitment to raise the child up under the Mosaic law. Believer's baptism is the decision of an individual who has matured to the point that they can understand the gospel and believe in Christ, and then they make the decision as a sign of their new position in Christ and uh, to obey the scriptures. And so this is what is indicated. By, and, and see, early, early in the church age, probably by the third century, they were making this analogy that baptism is the same as uh, circumcision, and they introduced the whole concept of infant baptism on a false analogy. So now, under the last point, 14, church-age believers... Jew and Gentile believers are the new circumcision, and that's our passage in Philippians 3, 3. All right? So that's about as thorough as I'm going to get on circumcision, and we'll come back next time. And now we have to do a drill down into uh, Saul of Tarsus's pedigree as a Pharisee of the Pharisee and all that that entailed. So we'll get into that next week. Father, thank you for this time to understand that the reality is not the physical rituals. The reality is faith in Christ, either in anticipation of the coming Messiah or in realization that he has come. And that we recognize that in Christ, we are, uh, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, separated from the authority of our sin nature, even though we will not be separated from the uh, influence of the sin nature until we are absent from the body and face to face with you. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand that all of these different rituals and signs are simply pictures of spiritual realities, and it's the spiritual reality that is significant, not the physical ritual. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.